You're listening to the Design for Disaster radio podcast with Josh Cormier. Chernobyl, a reactor out of control. Before listening to this podcast, I encourage you to listen to the Nuclear Fission for Power Generation podcast. This will help you to understand the factors involved in the following accident. Part 1. Power for the People The Soviet Union was driven to produce great technological feats as a validation of her fundamental political and economic ideology. Its advanced naval and space programs were examples of the capabilities of the collective. In addition to this, they built a nuclear power infrastructure that was as much another example of collective achievement as it was practical necessity. Energy resource management was of particular concern to the Russian government. 80% of its energy resources, like coal, were located in the east, far away from the European part of the country where 75% of its population resided. In order to move energy resources to the power plants located near the end user, the Soviet Union required the use of 40% of its rail infrastructure. The Soviet Union was also in search of a cleaner alternative to the fossil fuels it had traditionally relied on. During the 1970s, the Soviet Union engaged in an enormous effort to construct new nuclear power plants. By 1981, 86 billion kilowatt hours of electricity was produced by nuclear power. That grew by over 250% by 1985. The Soviets planned to grow this even further by a remarkable 17-fold increase from 1981 levels. It was during the early 1970s that the Soviet Union began construction of the Vladimir Lenin nuclear power plant near the town of Chernobyl, Ukraine. The Soviets decided to go with the unique but promising RBMK-1000 reactor. The first two units were completed in 1973 and 1975. Unit 3 was completed in 1983 and two more units were under construction in 1986. Unit 4, the accident reactor, was completed in 1983. Part 2 the RBMK-1000 reactor. Besides Chernobyl, there were eight other RBMK-1000 units completed by 1983 with plans for more as well as an upgraded version capable of producing 1,500 megawatts electric. By 1980, 64.5% of nuclear-produced electric power in the Soviet Union came from the same type of reactor as used at Chernobyl. The RBMK-1000 reactor is a boiling water reactor that is capable of producing 1,000 megawatts electric from 3,200 megawatt tons for an efficiency of just over 30%, which was average power plant efficiency at the time. The nuclear fuel core was 23 feet high and 70 feet in diameter. It was housed in the floor of a large industrial building as opposed to a special containment built especially for a nuclear reactor. The reactor had several one-of-a-kind design features, and the uniqueness of the Chernobyl accident is related to the... um, uniqueness of the reactor design. Indeed, it is widely believed within the nuclear community that this accident would not have happened with any other common reactor design in use. The reactor could remain online for a larger percentage of time relative to other reactors because it could be refueled without being shut down. Having greater availability for electricity production was an important feature that drew the Russians to this design. In order to be refueled while still online, each fuel assembly was placed inside of its own pressurized channel that was surrounded by graphite. Each of the 1,600 pressurized channels could be separately raised from the core and changed out with a fresh fuel assembly. Coolant water would be circulated through the pressurized channel during normal operation and heated up, resulting in controlled boiling. The steam would then expand through turbines and generate electricity. 
Unlike common boiling water reactors, the RBMK relied on graphite as opposed to water to moderate the velocity of neutrons for fission. It is necessary to moderate the velocity as neutrons that are traveling too fast do not readily result in fission. In the RBMK-1000, the water in the reactor was used primarily as an absorber of neutrons, controlling the total number of neutrons and affecting criticality, but doing very little to slow the neutrons down, leaving the moderation of neutrons primarily to the graphite. As I will explain in the next part, this proved to be a fatal and foreseeable flaw that was unique to the design of this reactor. Part 3. The Positive Void Coefficient the water in an RBMK-1000 reactor absorbs neutrons controlling the population of neutrons and ultimately the reactor power. When the water becomes less dense, it absorbs fewer neutrons, thereby limiting the effect of water on power stabilization. Steam bubbles, being less dense than water, result in voids in the absorbing water, allowing the neutron population to remain largely unchanged in these voids. Put simply, the more dense the water, the more sponge-like it behaves in controlling neutrons and therefore reactor power. Now, in a normal reactor, the reactor relies on water as both the absorber and the moderator. This has the effect that the absence of water results in an absence of needed moderated neutrons and therefore a lowering of power, known as a negative void coefficient. So by placing the burden of both moderating neutrons and controlling their population on the water alone, the absence of water would automatically decrease the power of the reactor. However, by separating the moderation and absorption functions between graphite and water respectively, the absence of water will result in an increase in reactor power, known as a positive void coefficient. So as the water becomes less dense because of the steam voids, it would result in a greater population of neutrons, which would result in more fissions. More fissions resulted in more power. More power resulted in more steam voids, which only led to more neutrons and more power until catastrophe. Interestingly, the accident at Chernobyl Unit 4 was essentially impossible two years earlier. When the reactor was initially placed into operation, it had a number of fixed neutron absorbers to account for the higher population of neutrons in its fresh fuel. This created a negative void coefficient. However, as nuclear fuel was used up, the absorbers were removed to allow for more reactivity with less fuel, allowing for the possibility of a positive void coefficient. Part 4. The Nuclear Community for society built on the fundamental idea that the state is greater than the individual and that the individual's highest calling is the welfare of the collective, the Chernobyl disaster was a very individual tragedy. To tell the story of Chernobyl absent of the individuals involved would be negligent. The workers resided in the city of Pripyat. Pripyat was built beginning in 1970 and was an outstanding exemplification of the hope of socialism. Like all things socialist, the city provided its residents with nearly everything that they could need, but few opportunities to attain things they may want, like automobile ownership. For the worker residing in Pripyat, life was on a level above that of Soviets living in other parts of the Soviet Union. It is also important to remember that this city was the center of a community that coalesced co-workers into something more than work acquaintances. They would have frequented the same places outside of work and their children would have gone to the same schools. Pripyat and the planet Chernobyl were more akin to a modern military base in America than a power plant in a nearby town. This connection to one another makes the selflessness immediately following the accident more understandable. Because of misinformation and a lack of appropriate education, most people in the Soviet Union, especially plant workers, were overly confident in the safety of their nuclear power plants. This is exemplified by a quote from the Minister of Power and Electrification of the Ukraine published in Soviet Life magazine, a mere two months prior to the, to the Chernobyl accident. The odds of a nuclear meltdown are 1 in 10,000, 
The plants have reliable controls that are protected from any breakdown with three safety systems, he said. The safety culture was also handicapped by the authoritarian nature of Soviet industrial management. Independent thinking was frowned upon. As a result, operator training was limited in scope and did little to equip them with the science they needed to adequately troubleshoot a problem and not exacerbate the issue. This would compound the impact of the design flaw in the RBMK-1000. For a citizen of the Soviet Union, it was a privilege to work at the nuclear power plant because of the quality of life it provided for the workers and their families. This was a problem that exaggerated the problem of workers being less willing to rock the boat. Doing so could not only lead to the very real possibility of losing your job, but also the lifestyle of your family. It was a strong incentive to go along to get along. But during the early morning of April 26th, the situation with Unit 4 would make the operator so uncomfortable that outspoken resistance was given to the orders of the person in charge, Anatoly Dyatlov. Dyatlov was a deputy engineer for operations at Chernobyl and a hard man by any standard. Even before the Chernobyl accident, he was no stranger to the dangers of the atom. Upon completing his education at the prestigious Moscow Engineering Physics Institute, Dyatlov was sent to work at a shipyard located in the Far East installing nuclear reactors on submarines. During one installation, an accident occurred exposing them 200 rem, 40 times the allowable annual dose for a U.S. radiation worker. The short-term effects of this dose in adults could be vomiting, blood changes, and loss of appetite. Being a healthy adult, Dyatlov was able to make a quick recovery, but it was a wake-up call for him. As the Chernobyl units were being completed in Ukraine, he would relocate there and become a leading engineer. Part 5. A test turned into a tragedy. On the night of April 25, 1986, Dyatlov arrived on site to manage the performance of a test. The purpose of the test was to verify the functionality and effectiveness of the fast-acting portion of the Emergency Core Cooling System, or ECCS. Unit 4 had two emergency cooling systems divided into a fast-acting system and a slow-acting system. When the turbine generator shut down, the fast-acting feed water system consisting of two compressed gas-driven pumps and a pump driven by the inertia of the coasting down turbine generator would begin delivering feed water for the cooling into the core. There, these were designed to operate long enough to allow the three diesel-driven pumps of the slow-acting system to come online and provide long-term cooling to the core. When the test was originally done a year earlier, the power from the turbine generator dropped off too quickly. To test on April 25th was to test the performance of a new voltage generator, a voltage regulator, designed to moderate the voltage drop-off during turbine generator coast-down and thereby improve system reliability. The entire test was scheduled to be completed on April 25th, but a second test was scheduled when the first test was unsatisfactory. Because of public electricity demands during the evening, Unit 4 was kept at 50% power until the grid controller notified Unit 4 that it was okay to begin the test at 11 p.m. The ship's shift supervisor for the night shift was Alexander Akimov. With Dyatlov present for the test, Akimov would be taking orders during the performance of the test. Another key, key player present in the control room is Leonid Toptunov, who would be responsible for executing control rod movements during the test. This would provide power control during reactor operations. In addition to the night shift crew, the previous shift supervisor, Yuri Tregub, remained on duty to assist with the test. In order to maintain the stability of the reactor during the test, the reactor was to remain between 21.8% and 31.25% power and an equivalent of 15 control rods. For reasons not known, the power of the reactor dropped to less than 1% about 30 minutes after midnight. Efforts to increase the power back to the necessary range were degraded by xenon poisoning. 
Xenon-135 is a neutron absorber that is a daughter isotope of iodine-135, which is normally produced during fission. When the power of the reactor is high enough, each Xenon-135 atom captures a neutron and is effectively burned off. However, at low power levels, the populations of, population of neutrons is not great enough to burn off the Xenon-135 atoms, and the reactor is effectively poisoned by this neutron absorber inhibiting an increase in reactivity until the population of neutrons is great enough to once again burn off the xenon-135 atoms. While trying to increase power from 1%, the operators weren't sure as to why power was not increasing as expected. The effects of xenon poisoning are routinely accounted for during reactor operations, so it is unclear why the operators in the control room did not realize this when the reactor, when the new reactor power was not increasing as planned. I speculate that the atmosphere in the control room was tense as the pressure to complete the test satisfactory and timely may have been high. Also, Dyatlov was known to be an intense individual, and the presence of the deputy engineer in the control room may have limited the free exchange of troubleshooting ideas. In order to increase the power in the reactor, control rods were removed. It is estimated that the amount of equivalent control rods was reduced from eight, from the min to eight from the minimum secure uh, necessary for safe operations of 15 a 47% reduction in neutron absorption by control rods, and a substantial reduction in safe operating margins. This was so significant that it required the disabling of a reactor safety feature. With the decrease in the amount of control rods, the power increased to 6.25%. At this point, the reactor has a severely limited ability to absorb neutrons and is also operating well below the necessary minimum of 21.8% power, which is known to lead to instability in a reactor. The reactor maintain, maintains these conditions for 22 minutes beginning at 1 a.m. Accounts from within the control room state that objections, particularly from Akimov, were made to Dyatlov regarding the unsafe parameters the reactor was operating at. Akimov advocated for discontinuing the test, whereas Dyatlov overrode his objections. Keep in mind that the culture at the time was that these reactors were extraordinarily safe, so unsafe parameters likely didn't carry the weight that they should have. In this light, Akimov actions were a red flag. It is as unlikely that Akimov would have been so adamant about the status of the reactor had he not been genuinely concerned. If at if any point before now Dyatlov would have discontinued the test, as would have been prudent, it is likely that this accident would have been avoided. At 1.23 a.m., the test of the fast-acting ECCS began, and with it a decrease in the coolant flow rate. Within one minute, the reactor power increased 265% and did not stop rising. With this, the pressurized fuel channels began rupturing. Steam generation increased rapidly with the core as these channels ruptured. With the increase in steam generation came the steam voids that increased the population of neutrons, burning off the neutron-absorbing xenon-135 that had poisoned the reactor and further increasing the population of neutrons that were able to reach the graphite moderator. With the rapid reduction in water and xenon to absorb neutrons, each generation of fissions increasing, increased accordingly, resulting in a runaway chain reaction. The unstable core began acting like a pot of boiling water with a lid on top, in this case a 1,000-ton plate which began to violently shake. The vibrations were felt in the control room. Reactor foreman Valery Perevichenko saw the block shaking on top of the fuel chain channels, causing them to run immediately to the control room to inform them of the situation. The last line of defense to control the reactor was the emergency shutdown executed by pushing the scram button. But here, the design of the reactor held a fatal flaw. With the full retraction of the control rods earlier, the channels they occupied backfilled with water. 
When the control rods were inserted, the graphite tips displaced the water, decreasing the absorption of neutrons, thereby increasing the reactivity of the reactor until the control rod is fully inserted. So reactor scram will actually momentarily increase reactivity and not decrease it at just the time that a decrease in reactivity is required. The scram button was pressed 36 seconds after beginning the test, but the control rods jammed prior to reaching their lower limit. This was likely because the housing for the control rods had shifted earlier in the accident sequence. At 1.24 a.m., radiation monitor Nikolai Gorbachenko was taking a tea break with a colleague when he heard a loud thud. Believing it was a water hammer caused by rapidly changing flow rates from the pump during reactor shutdown, they thought little of it until it happened a second time. The second thud ripped open doors, shut off lights, and filled the room with dust as the reactor exploded. Moments later, Pervachenko arrived at the control room to report on what he had just seen in the reactor hall. Akimov refused to believe his account and insisted that the reactor was still intact. Two workers showed up at the duty room and asked Gorbachenko and his colleague for assistance in looking for Vladimir Shashenok. As they searched for Shashenok, they were forced to traverse radioactive steam, rubble, and standing water. They found Shashenok unconscious and carried him out. Shashenok was so contaminated with radiation that his hand left a radiation burn on Gorbachenko. Shashenok would die a little over four hours later. He was responsible for monitoring the various gauges. At the time of the explosion, he had been on the phone with the computer room, reporting readings from gauges. Alexander Yevchenko had been in his office when the explosions occurred. The explosion violently shook his office and blew doors open. Like most parts of the plant, a gray fog of radioactive dust permeated the space. He was unable to contact the Unit 4 control room, but he received a call from Unit 3 requesting that he bring stretchers. Outside of the control room, he ran into a badly disfigured person. Only the person's voice enabled Yevchenko to identify him. Since this casualty was already being assisted, Yevchenko made his way to the coolant tanks in search of the operator stationed there. Near the coolant tanks, Yevchenko found the operator standing up, but badly scalded and in a state of shock. The operator pointed and told Yevchenko, Go over there and look for Valery Kodemchuk. From the combination of shock and physical disfigurement, the operator couldn't see that there was nothing left in the direction in which he pointed. The part of, that part of the building had been destroyed, leaving Kodemchuk the first fatality of the Chernobyl accident. Part 6. Responding to Disaster With everything inside the reactor building in ruins, Yevchenko and Tregub, who by now linked up with Yevchenko in an attempt to uh, actuate the coolant water, went outside to get a better view of the situation. It was mesmerizing devastation. Yevchenko was fixated on the bluish beam of light streaking up from the rubble caused by the ionization of air. After just a couple of seconds, Tregub pulled him around a corner, shielding him from the high amount of gamma radiation emitting from the reactor and likely saving his life. Yevchenko would receive a dose of 410 rem by daybreak. Yevchenko and Tregub made their way back to the control room of Unit 4. On the way, they ran into three workers sent by Dyatlov to manually lower the control rods to their limit. Because of this, it is evident that at this time Dyatlov was still unaware of the extent of the damage. Had he been aware of the reality, it would have been absurd to send a team out to manually lower control rods that no longer existed. The failure to grasp the magnitude of the accident at Chernobyl was not limited to Dyatlov. When the explosions occurred, turbine operator Yuri Korniev was nearly killed by falling debris. Thankful to be alive, he was also content that the debris had failed to destroy Turbine 7, which he had been responsible for. 
When an electrician showed up to check on the situation, both went outside on the balcony for a smoke, clearly not aware that the nuclear reactor had exploded, leaving a very high amount of radiation present. The lapse of situational awareness continued for hours after the explosions. Dyatlov continued to send workers to manually operate various components under the misconception that the reactor was still intact with functional safety systems. These safety systems were either inoperable or outright destroyed. Either way, these safety systems could not do nothing to salvage the reactor. Nearly all of the workers sent to ex execute these pointless tasks received a fatal dose of radiation, dying within hours, days, and weeks of the accident. The chief engineer of Chernobyl, Nikolai Fomin, arrived at Unit 4 about three hours after the explosions. When he arrived, ship supervisor Akimov reported an intact reactor. Fomin ordered the continued feeding of water into the reactor. Unbeknownst to Fomin was that this coolant water was actually making the accident worse. The water only served to flush radioactive debris from the wreckage and into the basement of the reactor building. When Dyatlov was relieved at 5 a.m., Fomin ordered his replacement to climb, climb to the roof and survey the damage. Upon returning, but not before receiving a fatal dose of radiation, he informed Fomin that the reactor was destroyed. Fomin refused to believe this and continued with his current plan of feeding water into the core. The firefighters who had immediately responded to Unit 4 were also unprepared for the radiation levels. Out of a sense of duty, they were under, undeterred and continued to arrive on scene in greater numbers to fight the fire to include going on what remained of the roof. They received fatal doses of radiation and were incapacitated in a short amount of time. Some have debated how much awareness the first responders had of radiation and its dangers. Although that is debatable, it is without question that they became aware of the life-threatening dangers that were present at the site within hours of arrival. Efforts to control the accident were recklessly valiant. Thousands of available support personnel, including the Soviet military, were brought to Chernobyl as efforts increased to control the fires and begin containing the meltdown, meltdown reactor core. <clears throat> Some of these workers would don lead vests and race in small teams to the remaining roof. Then they would quickly shovel and haul as much debris as possible into the open hole of the reactor hall. After a short period, they would leave and be replaced by, um, fresh, by a fresh team. Other activities included waste disposal, decontamination, testing, aerial drops by helicopter of shielding materials like sand and boron into the core, and the building of a containment around Unit 4. These workers were known as liquidators. The Ukrainian version of this is a term meaning to eliminate, as in to eliminate the contamination. Numbers vary as to exactly how many liquidators worked at Chernobyl. According to records of the Soviet Union, 138,390 liquidators worked during 1986, with a total of 293,100 by the end of 1989. Their contaminated ground vehicles and aircraft remain on location in a storage yard. It is difficult to accurately calculate the health effects of radiation beyond the effects of short-term high doses. It is safe to assume that the unhealthy and vulnerable likely experienced long-term health effects. Although the initial fires were extinguished by daybreak, the radioactive graphite posed a major hazard as it caught fire. As the graphite burned, it released radioactive material into the atmosphere, dispersing it over a wide area. The graphite fire would be um, extinguished in 10 days, but the release of radioactive material into the atmosphere continued for another 10 days. Part 7. Abandoning Hope Extra police and military units began arriving in Pripyat in the early morning hours to establish roadblocks around Pripyat. Based on a decision by the Pripyat Ministry of Home Affairs, it had been decided that travel to and from the city would be prohibited. 
This decision was made merely 45 minutes after the accident. Moscow was notified about two hours later. The hospital in Pripyat became a location of chaotic triage for the plant workers and first responders returning from Unit 4. Either through disorganization or ignorance, the hospital had not established acceptable procedures for limiting radioactive contamination at the hospital. Contaminated workers would first go into the basement of the hospital to remove contaminated clothing and then proceed upstairs for treatment. In spite of the unfolding disaster, notification was delayed in getting to non-essential personnel. At 8 a.m., workers began arriving at the nuclear power plant. This included construction workers arriving to continue work on Units 5 and 6. In Pripyat, school children reported to school as normal. Indeed, with the ex exception of plant workers and their immediate family members, the morning of April 26, 1986 was, a little, was little different than any other. However, as time went on, the reality of the disaster would begin to set in. Residents noticed, that the, presence of an ab noticed the presence of an abnormal amount of police stationed everywhere. However suspicious, the residents got on with life as normal, even going to relax next to a stream connected to the coolant reservoir pond for the nuclear power plant. For the remainder of the day, the residents were simply told that there was a fire at Unit 4, which was obvious from Pripyat, but were not informed about the radiation or its dangers. That night, some residents gathered on a nearby bridge for the view of the beautiful light show produced by the burning radioactive graphite. This standing, those standing on what became known as the Bridge of Death potentially received a dose 66% of that determined to be fatal. Although official accounts are difficult to substantiate, it is difficult that at the very least those, or it is believable that those at the, at the very least those on the bridge experienced nausea, vomiting, and a loss of appetite. It is likely that some fared much worse. At midnight on the 26th, buses began to solemnly um, arrive and line up in Pripyat. By noon on the 27th, nearly 1,200 buses were stuffed in or near the city. At 2 p.m., the residents of Pripyat were told to gather three days' worth of clothing and some food and board the buses within two hours for a temporary evacuation. The buses left in slow columns like military vehicles stretching miles across the countryside. The nearly 43,000 evacuating residents would never be allowed to return to their homes. The modern city of Pripyat remains a time capsule of the best of Soviet life in its prime. Part 8. Cooperation to Avoid Catastrophe Always eager to avoid the perception of failure both domestically and internationally, Soviet officials delayed the widespread release of news about the accident for as long as possible. Suspicions outside of the Soviet Union of a radioactive release first became evident two days after the accident when nuclear plant workers in Sweden detected radioactive material on their shoes during routine checks. It was determined that the material had been tracked from outside and was indicative of contamination from the atmosphere. After inquisitions of possible western sources of radiation and analysis of weather patterns, it was deduced that the material had originated in the Soviet Union. At 9.30 p.m. on the 28th, later in the same day that Swedish um, workers had discovered the radioactive material, Soviet news began broadcasting a report that an accident had happened at Chernobyl. The report was limited in the information as normal for bad news in the Soviet Union and downplayed the scale of the accident. Shortly after, Western European scientists stated directly that a complete meltdown and corresponding release of radioactive material had occurred at Chernobyl. The cat was out of the bag. The timing of the accident came at a time when the East and West were primed for greater cooperation. With the acknowledgement of the Chernobyl accident came the acceptance that more can be gained by working together on nuclear safety than keeping secrets from one another. 
Since 1989, over 2,000 scientists have made visits between the former Soviet Union and the Western powers. This cooperation has dramatically increased the safety culture and reactor safety globally. Part 9. Engineering a Tomb Because of the fallout from the reactor, an exclusion zone of 1,600 square miles was created around the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Still guarded by military checkpoints, the zone has prohibited entry of those without escort, although some determined residents have returned to their villages without regard to the radioactive contamination. During the second half of 1986, a steel and concrete sarcophagus was constructed around the reactor hall of Unit 4. It had been determined too costly and nearly impossible to eliminate the entire site. After six years of use, the Ukrainian government decided that a new confinement was needed as repairing or replacing the original confinement was impossible given the high level of contamination at the site. After requesting construction bids from around the world, an international team of engineers and workers gathered to build one of the greatest engineering feats of all time, a giant moving sarcophagus. Because the area immediately around the reactor was considered hazardous to work around for extended periods of time, the design called for it to be built nearly 1,000 feet away from Unit 4 and then moved via hydraulic rams along a Yom track until it was in position over the reactor hall. The confinement is a steel arch nearly 300 feet tall at its center and is about 800 feet wide. It has been calculated that the steel structure weighs more than the Eiffel Tower. Because of its extraordinary size, moving the structure was no small feat. Hydraulic rams were mounted to the track. When in position, they would pinch the track and extend, pushing the structure forward. At full extension, the rear pinchers would release, the rams would contract, and the pinchers would pinch again, allowing for another ram extension, kind of like a hydraulic caterpillar. This process would continue until the structure was in place, which took about 40 hours over the course of a week. The new, the new safe confinement was put into position at the end of 2016, and final touches were made to the structure during 2017. Once the structure is completely ready, to, completely ready, two remotely operated bridge cranes mounted inside the new confinement will begin deconstructing unstable portions of the original sarcophagus. The new confinement also serves as a sort of tomb, retaining inside of it a landmark man-made disaster as well as the remains of Valery Kodemchuk.